we just want them to be happy, healthy, love each other, love people, you know, continue to grow. They have a firm foundation of education and always know, remember where you've come from. And then uh, in 18 years, choose Florida State University as their school, and then we'll be all set. You know, we'll be all good. <laughs> Hey now, what's going on? Welcome to the Jim Rohn Podcast and welcome to episode 222 where I am about to cut it up with a dude who actually does exactly that for a living. My guest this week is one of the sharpest, most accomplished cats that has ever graced the original side hustle. What, Rome? You book a brain surgeon or something? Yes, that's exactly what I did, because my guest this week is Dr. Myron Roll. Probably remember the doc as an All-American DB at Florida State, but even then, he was more than just a great football player, way more, because my man snagged a freaking Rhodes Scholarship while he was in Tallahassee. And then after a brief NFL stint, he went back to FSU for med school, and then he started his second career as a neurosurgeon. Now he's got a book out explaining how exactly he made all that happen. I cannot wait to pick the brain of a dude who literally picks other people's brains for a living. Literally. So let's get right into it. It is episode 222 with Dr. Myron Roll, and it's coming at you right now. So it's been a moment or two, Doc, but it's great to have an opportunity to speak with you once again. Bring me up to date, first of all. How are you living, and how is that growing family of yours? Thanks, Jim. No, it's uh, great to talk to you. I remember speaking to you when I was an undergrad at Florida State, and uh, you've always been amazing. So, uh, and a huge fan in, uh, of of mine and, and my family's. But yes, I am uh, a father of four now, two twins, uh, two sets of twins, under the age of two years old. So it's a lot. It's a really busy house. Me and my wife are doing the best we can. Uh, but it's been great. It's a blessing. And wow. now an author of a book. So, you know, trying to put it all together. Absolutely amazing. And I am a huge fan of yours. I always have been. So I've been looking forward to that. So, I mean, you've got two sets of twins. You are a Rhodes Scholar, an NFLer, a neurologist, now an author. In fact, in terms of the book, what's it like? What was it like to write the book? And then how are you feeling today as it's about to drop and you're going to put it out there in the universe and in a way put yourself out there? Yeah, absolutely. You know, it's a blessing. I, I always felt that, um, you know, there would be a time where I can write my story and hopefully inspire somebody. So I read Ben Carson's book, Gifted Hands, in the fifth grade, and I knew from that moment that I wanted to be a neurosurgeon. I saw his story. I just I just, I just, gravitated towards his family, bringing him up to uh, focus on education, uh, and he became my academic hero, as well as Deion Sanders becoming my athletic hero. And then once athletic ability exhausted itself from my body, then I'd move into neurosurgery, and that's where I am currently. So this book that I'm writing, The 2% Way, it came from my football coach at Florida State, having us challenging us to get 2% better in everything we did uh, on the football field. And so it's about taking small steps every single day towards a larger goal, breaking down something that may seem overwhelming and make it into manageable pieces. And so we wrote the book and we're excited about it. We think it can reach many different audiences. And, um, you know, my wife believes in it. My family believes in it. We all believe in it. We think that it can truly bring somebody uh, to find themselves and become a better version of themselves. Okay, frankly, there's so many good things in that response that I could respond to, but let me ask you this. You can't write a book like that without opening yourself up, without making yourself a little bit vulnerable, and these are not necessarily things you've done in the past. Most athletes don't, and we're starting to get more and more open about these things, but that part, that part of being more vulnerable and opening yourself up, was that challenging or maybe was that liberating? 
It was challenging, Jim. You know, I'm typically somebody, you know, you know me since I was in college. I, I, I'm very professional and I just, you know, I try to be motivational as much as I possibly can, but I don't really get deep into the personal introspective thoughts and feelings that I may have had going through the Rhodes Scholarship or thinking that I was a failure in the NFL for only playing three years, coming off of being an All-American at Florida State, the number one rated high school football player. Uh, you know, at my high school in, in Princeton, New Jersey, and then letting people down or disappointing people based on the fact that I didn't stick around the NFL. But then flipping that and thinking, well, maybe it was a way that I was protected from playing long in the NFL, didn't get a TBI, didn't get CTE, didn't break my hand so I can go on and be a neurosurgeon. So yes, I talk about all of these challenges, uncertainty, self-doubt, prejudice, feeling a little bit socially awkward at times, uh, going through workplace challenges, and even dealing with you know the situation dating my wife where she was a distant from me and thinking about all these things. So I, I talk about all of these uh, vulnerable moments in my life and how I was able to mitigate them through using this 2% way process and hopefully it can resonate with uh, the people who read it. Doc, I mean, this this is an amazing thing you just said to me, and I can't wait to get into the 2% process, but that fact that, or the point that you just made that I thought or I was concerned that maybe I let people down or maybe I was a failure in any way because of my three years in the NFL. I mean, it's an astonishing thing what you're saying. Again, we're talking about somebody who was a top college athlete, a Rhodes Scholar, a neurologist, and yet you're having the same kinds of feelings that a lot of us have. I mean, like, for instance, if I were to start, you had to make a choice, well, several choices in your life, like a lot of people. But when you were a senior, you had to make a choice. Do I take that Rhodes Scholarship? Ultimately, how did that impact your NFL career and what went into that decision? Was that a difficult decision at that time? It was a very difficult decision, Jim. You know, I think uh, a lot of people thought that I wasn't committed to football, uh, that I wasn't serious about the sport, that I abandoned my team, uh, that I, you know, would leave and do something else if football became too challenging. I remember coming back after going to Oxford and choosing the Rhodes Scholarship because I thought it would be the best choice for me to really develop myself as a leader in medicine and in social justice and other aspects of my life. But after coming back to the Senior Bowl in Mobile, Alabama, sitting down with a team, the Tampa Bay Bucks, and, and then their front office personnel peppering me and asking me, you know, did I care about football? Do I want it? Am I a quitter? I'm thinking to myself, well, here I am trying to be the best student athlete I possibly could be, and, and I'm being – um, sort of, uh, it's a black mark. It's a, it's a check against me uh, that I'm trying to do it at the most high level, uh, being an Oxford Rhodes Scholar. So that was a stigma that it was hard to shake in the National Football League. I remember uh, when I got drafted by the Tennessee Titans, um, stretching in line and coaches coming up to other players and asking them about cover two and their blitz and their ability to shed blockers. And then they get to me, well, Meyer, how was it walk, walk, going over to Congo and Rwanda with President Clinton to help sexual violence uh, over in East Africa? And I'm like, well, it's cool that you're asking me that, but can you talk to me about blitz packages and, and cover schemes and fire zones as well? But I, I knew that that wasn't my position. That wasn't my place. It was hard to shake it. And I didn't last very long in the NFL. And yeah, it was difficult to sort of think about me being a failure in that moment. But I think it really just catapulted me to going into medicine early, starting my career as a neurosurgeon, and now, you know, hopefully saving lives in the operating room uh, at Harvard in Boston. Imagine being a Rhodes Scholar, being a mark against in anything or any walk of life. Just really quickly, I, I don't see how you could, but did you ever second guess that? Or maybe in that moment, did you ever second guess that decision? Or did you always know in your heart of hearts that was absolutely the right thing to do? 
no, Jim, I definitely second guessed it. I was, I was like, why, why did I go to Oxford? Why did I do this? Because I really wanted to play. I've been playing football since I was six. My cousin Samari played in the NFL. Antro played in the NFL. I was like, I want to do this. I went to Florida State because I wanted to play in the league. Uh, but I realized that the NFL. Uh, they, they, they do like players who will do what they say, right? You either go woe or sick them. And they want those players who are easily malleable. That you, can, you can fix them how you want to. But if you're someone who thinks out of the box or maybe has other options, why would they invest money in you, invest a draft pick in you, invest a starting position into you if you can get up and leave and do something else? So nevertheless, I still enjoy the sport. And I love now that I'm able to be a neuroscientist and help with concussions and CTE from this side of things. So your relationship, obviously, is still very, very good with the sport, right? Whatever, whatever issues you may have had, you were able to reconcile them and you still love the game, right? Absolutely. Still love the game. I still talk to a lot of my former teammates. Uh, I still enjoy you know, watching it. Uh, and I, again, enjoy, you know, using my professional vocation to hopefully help preserve the sport so we can, you know, learn about CTE, find diagnostic imaging to help uh, further diagnose it quicker so we can get the help that these players need sometimes uh, after they leave the sport, because I think they have all the design and development to be great leaders in this world. But if they're hampered and, and inhibited based on these protein deposits that get into their brain, uh, which accelerate their suicidal ideation or depression or aggressive behavior, uh, and we don't find it quickly enough and don't give them a treatment quickly enough, then sometimes their life can be cut short or they can cut other people's lives short. And we don't want that at all. Hey, guys, let me ask you something. What are you doing when it comes to skincare? Yeah, that's what I thought. You probably have no routine whatsoever. Bad play. But... This is where Tiege Hanley comes in. Tiege Hanley is a men's skincare company that helps guys start and maintain a healthy skincare routine by making the process uncomplicated. That's your problem. You don't have a plan, but you need one and now you do. As an example, let me recommend to you the Skincare System Level 1. It's the easiest way to get started and it comes with all the basics that you need to take care of your skin. The products included are a face wash, an exfoliating scrub, an AM moisturizer, and a PM moisturizer. Listen, you may think that you don't need a skincare routine, but you do. Trust me. I know I do. I'm in front of a camera every single day, so I take this seriously. And this plan and this routine work perfectly for me and in my process. But don't take my word for it. Tish Hanley has over 5,000 five-star reviews, 5,000-plus five-star reviews on their website from customers worldwide. And because Tish Hanley is sponsoring today's episode, they are offering you a great deal. Just go to tiege.com slash Rome, and you'll get 30% off your first box plus a free gift. That's T-I-E-G-E dot com slash Rome. It's an amazing deal. T-I-E-G-E dot com slash Rome. All right, so your book is fascinating, and believe me, I'm going to get into this, but right before I do, I just want to pick up on something you just said. So if you were playing the game and you were already studying the potential for brain trauma, even as you were playing the game, you know, I think that most players would say, we know exactly what we signed up for. Yeah, maybe not entirely, right? But if anybody did, it was you because of your background. Were you at all conflicted, and how did you go about weighing the risk versus the reward of playing the game when you play the game? Jim, that is a, that's a great question. And that's one of the, my regrets that I had uh, when I played. Although I knew 
what this gelatinous structure in our skull, our hard skull could do if it was banged against the skull in a very rapid moment and rapid motion. I didn't want to think about it too much because I felt that it would slow me down in the game that was defined by inches and defined by quick moments and movements. And I also didn't want coaches and personnel to think of me as someone who uh, would question or would hesitate if I was asked to go and be a wedge buster on a kickoff team, would I do it or would I question doing that because I'm thinking about my brain. Uh, so at that point, I did regret it. But looking back now, I try to talk to all the athletes I can, high school, college, and pros, about wearing proper material, wearing the right, um, wearing the right uh, mouthpiece, uh, self-reporting, understanding what the, uh, what the signs and symptoms of concussions look like, uh, and, and doing all the things necessary uh, to keep them safe during this sport. All right, so what is the 2% way exactly, and who taught it to you? So my football coach at Florida State University, Mickey Andrews, my defensive coordinator, he taught me this 2% way process. He got it from his coach, Paul Bear Bryan at University of Alabama. And essentially, it was a way for us to have practical, tangible goals of daily improvement. He said, if you, you can't get 100% better tomorrow, that's impractical. But you can get a little bit better in your stamina, your backpedaling, your ability to high point the football. And I extrapolated that, that mindset of just taking a larger goal, a larger task, and breaking it down 2% at a time so you can have those small victories and have that slow progress, but real progress. And you can look back a month from now, six months from now, a year from now, and realize the growth you've made. And so I love it. I wrote about it in the book extensively, how it get, it got me from challenges, it got me from problems, how it helped me move towards my goal and a better version of myself. And I think it can resonate with a lot of people because the human experiences that I had of self-doubt, uncertainty, racial epithets, prejudice, feeling socially awkward at times, all of these things matter. And I think everyone really has these experiences. And uh, the 2% way is a good way, a slow process in, in sort of overcoming these challenges for okay. sure. So obviously it made you as good a football player as you could possibly be, at least theoretically, right? Or maybe it did. I mean, is it something, it's one thing to say I could take it off the field and I can apply it to other things. I mean, do you apply it to the most important things in your life or even the most mundane things? I mean, is it a way of life? Is it a lifestyle? Do we apply it to everything? I do think it's a lifestyle, and I do think it has utility in multiple aspects of your life. Spirituality, if you want to pray more, get closer to your, your God, you can do that through having accountability buddy, checking off every single day that you've done a little bit more and a little bit more, and feeling comfortable with doing small steps. I think in times, we just compare ourselves to other people who are outside of our lanes. We sort of compare our journeys and say, well, they've got it all today, or they've got it all yesterday, or they got it all next week. Why can't I do it? And you sometimes feel discouraged that you're not moving fast enough or doing enough. Uh, but if you stay consistent with that 2% process, I think it's reasonable. And I use it in my professional life. If I want to get better at a certain surgery that I need to do, then I'm going to read on it. I'm going to watch videos. I'm going to employ the help and enlist the help of neurosurgeons who have done this a thousand times over. I'm going to talk to my wife, who's a pediatric dentist and doesn't know much about neurosurgery, but I'm going to talk to her about the case from start to finish, how I position the patient, who I want to have in the room, what tools I need, just so she knows that I know. If she can understand it when I explain it to her, then I think I've got it. I envision how I do that surgery in the shower before going to the case, almost like I'm in the game and sort of thinking through things. So it has utility in many different ways uh, in my life, and I hope it, it has the same uh, effect on the readers too. Absolutely. This book is called The 2% Way, How Philosophy of Small Improvements Took Me to Oxford, the NFL and Neurosurgery. Hey, Doc, like that, the comparison game, just to pick up on that really quickly, I do another podcast called The Reinvention Project with Jim Rome. We talk about this all the time. The comparison game, that is the most dangerous game, isn't it? 
It really is. It really is. It is. Uh, it can be a, a paralyzer. I mean, you think about what other people are doing. You try to put yourself and juxtapose your journey to someone else's. It can truly stymie your growth. You can almost think that you're just not enough. And, and that's never the case. Our brain is beautiful. We have six lobes in our brain, frontal, parotid, occipital, temporal, insula, and the limbic lobe which has these neurotransmitters that get released when we are rewarded, when we feel like we've done something well. And it sort of activates this excitatory pathway that makes us feel good. And if we do take these small, simple steps every single day, these small victories and pat ourselves and say, yeah, I got a little bit better today. That is the excitement. That is the, the movement that we absolutely need. And we need to stay in that lane and block out the background noise and that comparison that you're speaking about uh, so that we don't get distracted or depressed or derailed from who we ought to be. So, quick question. Why is Old Trapper Beef Jerky so amazing? Let's start with the fact that it is a family-run business. A family business which stands by quality and produces the world's best beef jerky. Now, I've made this point many, many times, and I want to make it again right now. Beef jerky is not just beef jerky. I think some of you go to the store and you reach for the beef jerky and you think it's all the same. In fact, you might not even know what you're buying. That's a big mistake. Stop making that mistake. All beef jerky is not the same. In fact, there's nothing like Old Trapper. It is simply the best. Four mouth-watering flavors, so you can get your choice of whatever you want. Myself, I like them all the same. I bounce back and forth between each and every one of them. So you can do the same thing. They come in four-ounce bags. If you need to learn, do it that way. If you already know what you want, go with the 18-ouncer. That way there's enough for everybody. The entire unit, the entire family, the entire team. If you do not see it, ask for Old Trapper by name because no other jerky compares. Old Trapper, what is your beef? That's amazing. You talk about how you picked up a book when you were in fifth grade and it kind of gave you a view of the way the rest of your life could be. But the fact of the matter is, and you write about this in the book, you said the actual turning point for your entire life occurred when you were 11 years old. And it wasn't because you picked up that book. What happened? Oh my, uh, yeah, this was a, an interesting situation, man. Uh, you know, a young man, uh, a white kid uh, called me the N-word, uh, called my mother the B-word, and um, I had a bit of a temper when I was younger. I just always thought that if I was good in school and a good athlete, that my behavior could be untoward and it did not have to match the other parts of my life. So I used to get suspended. I got detentions. I would steal from our local stores, little stupid things when I was younger. But this one, a kid said these words to me and I just saw red. I went after him, beat him up. Uh, he had to go and get uh, medical attention for his injuries. His family took me uh, to court in Atlantic City, New Jersey. And I remember standing there in front of this judge at you know 11 years old and looking at him and uh, him admonished me for what I had done. Uh, and I saw my parents very disappointed. Uh, mommy and daddy were from the Bahamas. So we're thinking maybe we get deported. Maybe, you know, something happens. Like they were very disappointed in me. Uh, but thankfully, by the grace of God, a really good lawyer and some community advocates, I got to walk out of that courtroom without anything on my record. I just had to apologize to the young man and do some community service. Uh, but I, that really was a pivot point for me. I said, OK, I can no longer act this way and try to realize and actualize my potential as an athlete or as a student. So I started to join this school band. I played uh, the baritone saxophone. I was in our school musical. I, I was a white Russian Jewish milkman on Fiddler on the Roof. I was, uh, you know, on our, our brain brawl team. I uh, was our student body president. I was building homes for Habitat for Humanity. I gave my life to Christ. I was like doing the complete opposite, complete antithetical of where I was. And uh, that was a true turning point for me, for sure. My man, this that's not a 2% 
change right there. I mean, did you really understand in that moment, like the entire trajectory of not only your life, but maybe your family's life hung in the balance? I mean, did you feel that kind of gravity? I, I did because I saw my mother's face. Mummy is very uh, jovial. She's very energetic and she just has so much life to her. And in that moment, it just looked like a, a corpse. It looked like something that I just couldn't recognize. I couldn't understand. And at that point, I said, okay, this is very, very serious. She's no longer smiling. She doesn't have that light that comes, that emanates from her skin and radiates from her typically. Uh, at that point, I was like, okay, we have to do something different. There has to be a change. This no longer can solve problems and resolve my issues by throwing my hands and fighting people or getting suspended. That's not what we came to this country. And so I think uh, my, my parents, Visage and and their sort of disposition uh, really hit me uh, in the stomach. You know, I want to share with you, and I wanted your thoughts on this, if you don't mind. Like, my father had brain surgery many, many years ago. It was the, the 1980s because he had leukemia, and it got into his brain. And I will never forget when he first told us, I need brain surgery. And then I'll never forget seeing him after the fact, when enough time went by after he came out, what it was like. As you can imagine, these are things you never, ever, ever forget. What was it like the first time you performed an operation of that sort? What do you remember about that? Can you even describe what that was like? It was nerve wracking for sure, and I try not. I de I definitely didn't tell the family that I was nervous <laughs> to go in there, but I was uh, I was definitely nervous. I was like, man, I've prepared for this. I've gone over this a million times. I'm ready. But when you actually see the brain in front of you, and then you see the nice healthy tissue, and then you look at the non healthy tissue, which would be the tumor, uh, you say, okay, that looks distinctly different than this nice pink sort of gelatinous material that is your normal brain parenchyma. It was uh, it was a it was a a amazing. It just it was. It was surreal, knocked my breath away to, to be in that moment. And uh, I was led, I was led with uh, my attending, my, you know, my boss, he was there and sort of walking me through the case and making sure that I understood things. And what helped me in that case, honestly, Jim, was talking at every step. Okay. Hey, uh, Dr. Nahed was the, the doctor who was helping me. I said, Dr. Nahed, I'm going to now make an incision. Dr. Nahed, I'm now going to retract the skin. Dr. Nahed, I'm now going to use a bovi. Dr. Nahed, I'm now going to, you know, retract this part. Just keep talking through it. And that sort of gave me the comfort that I can do it. I can do it well. Even though I was taken away and blown back by seeing this specimen in front of me, I was able to, uh, you know, suppress that for a second and get the job done. And thankfully, it was a successful outcome. Is it, I mean, do you try to get into, I, certainly I would not make any comparison to sports, but is it a zone that you try to get into? How do you prepare? If you're preparing the night before a big game or a big athletic endeavor, is this just a normal workday? How do you prepare yourself emotionally, mentally, physically, and whatever it takes to perform an operation on the brain? Yeah, it's absolutely uh, very, very um, similar, I would say. Uh, hmm. I think the preparation uh, studying CT scans, MRIs to make sure that we have the right approach to the tumor or to the infection or to the lesion uh, in the brain or the spine. We know where we have to go. We minimize how much good tissue we have to get go through to get to the bad tissue. Uh, so we're doing all that and planning out and preparing. And we have strategy A, B, C, and D. If those first three don't work, we can go to the fourth. Making sure I know 
who's in the room so I can communicate with them. So you have to sort of be the quarterback as the surgeon, as the lead surgeon. You're talking to everyone, making sure that everyone's on the right page. We actually, Jim, even have a huddle before the case to talk about estimated blood loss, um, you know, what we expect the outcome to be in this case, how long the case is going to go, where the patient's going to go after the case, the ICU or the floor. So we talk, we say break, and we're ready and we get to go. So it does feel a little bit like football. And then the pressure moments when you get into maybe some bleeding, uh, something that you didn't expect to get into, uh, where something kind of goes a little bit wrong. You have to go back to your fundamentals, take a heartbeat or two, calm yourself down, focus on what needs to be done and get the job done. And that it's happened to me a couple of times. And I've been able to move through those pressure points, those pressure moments by using and relying on my football training from before. With prices soaring at the pump, Discover has your back with cashback. Use Discover to earn 5% cashback at gas stations and Target now through June on up to $1,500 in purchases when you activate. We know every dollar matters right now, but you can count on us. Get up to $75 cashback this quarter with Discover card. Limitations do apply. Learn more at discover.com slash rewards, discover.com slash rewards. All right, so if somebody picks up this book right now, I mean, certainly we cannot aspire, very few of us, if any of us could aspire to something like this, but we want to be our best version of ourselves. That's the whole point, right? Whatever it is, to be our best version of ourselves. But you know how the world is right now. It's very challenging. It's very confusing. People are depressed. People are anxious. If you're not in a good place, and maybe you're even in a dark place, and you want to start to rebuild yourself or create something, where do we start? What's the best way to go or start if we're just not feeling good about who we are or where we are? You know, I I would say to find those individuals who love you and support you. I never want to work through life and walk through life in a silo and feel that we're doing this alone. Uh, feel feel like those people who can buttress your journey and and you know the Bible talks about iron sharpening iron you know keeping those those positive people who can speak life into you around and then finding those um, you know uh, your targets right like where you want to go I think when life has purpose and life has meaning especially the meaning where you are going to help other people you're going to uplift others as you move towards your target that to me is the most fulfilling not for money not for acclaim not for fame but for trying to help others in the process and then applying that two percent process to just get a little bit better a little bit better a little bit better every single time and I, again i really do feel like that dis- that blocks out the, the distractions and the noise and sort of the the angst that some people may feel that the world is very difficult and tough it is uh, but there's a place for you there's a space for you in this world and you have to believe that and if you have a process and trying to get there even if you don't make that target the fact that you got better in that month or that two months or that six months will help elevate you and lift you to new heights and see things that you didn't even think that you can see in yourself. And so that's why I believe in this. My coach believed in it. And that's why I love to put it to people through my story. Uh, we're excited about it. Hey, Doc, don't you think it comes down to this? I think that people set big, big goals for themselves. And then when they don't realize them or they don't happen right away, they get discouraged. They get beaten down. They stop. They quit. And your point is don't do it like that. I mean, just chip off a little bit at a time. You win the day and then you win the next day and you keep stacking these days. And all of a sudden, a month, six months, one year down the road, you look at where you are as compared to where you started and you're amazed by it. But it's really not that amazing if you're doing it 2% at a time, right? Is that not what we're talking about absolutely absolutely jim that is perfect that is absolutely correct and you know the 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 fact that even if you don't hit that mark you don't hit that target if if that's the case you are still so much better and you still come so far and other people may be looking at 
your transition and your transformation and say, well, man, shoot, if she's doing it or he's doing it, then I can do it too. You don't even know the amount of impact and influence you're having by the fact that you're stacking these days, as you're mentioning, you're winning each day, you're getting a little bit better every single time. It is impressive. It is a great mindset. We all can move forward this way. We don't all have to have it tomorrow. We don't all have to have it next week. That's what they might quote unquote tell you out there in the cyberspaces, but but in realistic, in real life, uh, you can do it chip by chip, block by block brick by brick, and uh, you can have success that way. So let me finally ask you this, and congratulations on an amazing book, but I want to ask you because I'm, I'm so fascinated by mindset, and frankly, I don't know who I could better talk to right now about the mind than you, Myron. So I want to ask you, you, you've always been arguably the hardest worker in the room, deeply driven and guided by deep faith and values and standards. Where did that all come from? You know, the million-dollar question, how much of this was hardwired into you and you were blessed with this and gifted with this? And then how much of this was a product of your upbringing and those people around you? I, I think I have to give credit to God um, and and say that, you know, there are some of this talent that I've been able to use in my life for for, for the good uh, that was uh, blessed upon me for sure. Uh, but I think the majority of it came from the people who I had around me shaping and conditioning me and informing my journey forward. You know, I've always believed, Jim, uh, you know my story coming from the Bahamas, that my parents, that there are people who sacrifice for me and people like me and others in my generation whose names that I know, like my parents, sacrifice their livelihoods and their their opportunities and even their dreams uh, for me to have the chance to go to a boarding school in New Jersey, have a chance to play for Bobby Bowden, to have a chance to be a Rhodes Scholar. You know, Cecil J. Rhodes did not make the Rhodes Scholar for people who look like me. He made it for white men, bl- blonde hair, blue eye from, from England, who spoke the Queen's language and that was it. Now you look at the Rhodes Scholarships and they are everybody. I mean, it's so diverse, it's more women than men. It is fantastic. So thinking about those people who sacrificed for, for me to be where I am today and for others, my repayment to that debt of sacrifice is to be the best I possibly could be in all that I do, whether it be in medicine, trying to save a life, whether it be in science and trying to do research to expand and, and improve technology or improve how we deliver medicine, whether it being a mentor or being a great father and a husband and a family man, whatever it can be, my repayment is to exhaust all my athletic, all my ability, athletic, academic, whatever it may be, uh, to really try to, to change the world some kind of way. So I think the mindset uh, really, really shapes and informs a lot of how we, we move in this world. And uh, thinking back to where we all started, my origin, and the people who've come before me uh, really helps me in that process. No one close to you should have to endure that dreaded knock on the door. The knock that comes from a police officer who must tell your loved one that you were killed in a car crash. It's a message that gets even worse when they learn that your death may have been prevented if you had only been wearing your seatbelt. The simple fact is, regardless of what type of car you ride in, seatbelt use is the single most effective way to stay alive in a crash. That's why the National Highway Traffic Safety Administration is spreading the word we want to raise the profile of seatbelt safety so we can save lives. So, whether you're going on a cross-country trip or just up the street, please buckle up. Don't risk it. And remember, click it or ticket. Brought to you by NHTSA. My man, I'm going to let you go in one second, but you mentioned being a great father. So you've got two sets of twins, and you've got plenty of time to think about this, I'm sure. They're very young right now. Can you, I'm kind of curious, like, what's it going to be like to be your kids and your wife is highly accomplished you come from a family of achievers 
you know, not that you're going to put undue pressure on them, but there's going to be, you know, a fair amount of pressure on them based on who their parents are. Have you thought about that and how you go about raising them and managing those expectations where you want them to find their passion and you want them to be happy, but at the same time, you want the standard to be the standard, but what's the standard going to be? Yeah, no, that's a wonderful question. And, uh, you know, we're pretty brand new at this, but, you know, seeing what my parents have done for me and my uh, in-laws have done for my wife, uh, we just want them to be happy, healthy, love each other, love people, uh, and, you know, continue to grow. They have a firm foundation of education uh, and always know, remember where you've come from. And then uh, in 18 years, choose Florida State University as their school, and then we'll be all set. You know, we'll be all <laughs> Great. Good. That's super. Hey, on that thought, before I let you go, on this, let's walk off on this. You know, when I started my career and I got my first TV show with ESPN2 in 1993, you know, you always try to get the book. It was an interview show, so we wanted the book, the big interviews. One of the biggest names in sport at that time was Bobby Bowden, and it was amazing how accessible Bobby was, even to a young TV journal or whatever you wanted to call me at that time. And I was pretty brash on the way up myself, but God, he was such an amazing guy an amazing coach, an amazing person. What did he mean to you? And what was he like to play for? Uh, he was everything. Amazing. And I think you can tell like how much we loved him uh, when he passed away recently, how many of us poured into his, uh, his memorial service and, and wrote about him and expressed uh, what he has done for us. You know, when I first met coach, I was uh, in Tallahassee as a recruit and he had his big Bible in front of me and he was like, pick out your favorite scripture. And I picked it out and we talked about Christ for 30 minutes. Didn't even talk about cover two. Didn't talk about playing time. Didn't talk about graduation rates. We talked about Christ because he said, look, I know I can have players that come through my program and get to the NFL. And you might be one of them, Myron. You probably are. Um, but what I, what's most important to me is that my players join me in heaven one day. And so he was huge in his faith. He was such a folksy guy. He felt like a grandfather. I wanted to just go up and hug him all the time. My parents felt safe. Uh, that depositing me down in Tallahassee, that he would take care of me. And he truly did. So coach, he he believed in me. He allowed me to take that road scholarship interview and fly, get to Maryland late in the game uh, to be with my teammates after I won the scholarship. Just, uh, you know, not a lot of people would do that. And he just was uh, amazing. So I can't speak uh, more, you know, effusely about him because he is just, I don't know if I have any more words. He, he's a, a rock star in all of our uh, all of our hearts, and um, he'll live on forever for sure. An NFLer, a college star, a Rhodes Scholar, a neurologist, and the author of a brand new book, The 2% Way, How a Philosophy of Small Improvements Took Me to Oxford, the NFL in Neurosurgery. Myron, you are one of one. I mean that sincerely. I have such profound respect and admiration for you. And on a personal note, I really do appreciate that you appreciate and remember the conversations that you and I had when you were in college. That means a lot to me too, and I thank you for that. Thanks, Jim. Now, you're the man. I do remember that you uh, brought that camera crew around and I got to show you around what we did at FSU. And that was awesome. So I just I just have a huge smile on my face because uh, you're the you're the man. And I just always love talking to you. So I appreciate you for having me on and, and talking about the book. So thank you so much. I do, I do, too, Doc. And listen, congratulations on the book. It is an amazing read. Let's make sure that we don't wait until the next one that you write. Now, the next one you do write, we'll do this again. But let's talk before then for sure. Sounds good. Sounds good. Absolutely. future will be great but today is just as incredible 
Meet Nissan's most advanced lineup. If you can't get enough adrenaline, there's the all-new 400 HP Nissan Z. Or, for your off-road adventures, check out the all-terrain Nissan Frontier. If you're more of a spontaneous road trip type of person, then hop in the Nissan Pathfinder. And, for something more electric, there's the stylish Nissan Aria. So, let's enjoy the ride. 2023 Aria and Z not yet available for purchase. Expected availability this spring for 2023 Z and the fall of 2023 for the Aria. Like I said, one of one. This guy is absolutely brilliant and beyond impressive. Crazy to hear him describe that journey too. Crazy to hear him describe the process and crazy to hear how football prepared him for the operating room. So my thanks to Dr. Myron Roll for making some extended time this week because if anybody we've ever had on this original side hustle had more important places to be than here, it would be this guy. And if you're looking for more compelling, extended, unfiltered, and premium conversations like the one we just had, I've got you covered because we've already done over 220 of them. They're all available. They're all free for download or streaming right now. And if you're already all caught up, first of all, thank you very much. Well done. It probably means you already know the drill, but we've got another pod dropping every single week, including next week when we will hit episode 223. So do me a favor. If you haven't done so already, subscribe. That way the app will find you and you don't have to go looking for it. And while you do that, I've got something for you. I've got your voicemails. First new message. Jim, my guy, Greg in H-Town. What's up, my man? Long time since 1998, 25 years later, here the bleep we are. Hey, here's an XR4 TI rendition of Motley Crue's Take Me to the Top. James Philip Rome, reinvention. The St. Louis Mafia, my Latin Chuck Buffalo. Alvin Zanaro, procreation. Feel the river's got nothing on you. Bustectomy is what you do. Garrett, red, and sugar. He throws his skittles back. Diabetes, not a heart attack. Tom, exec producer. His name is Chocula. Don't call him Dracula. Take me to the top. Message deleted. Next message. Van Smack. Hey, you know, I heard these young teams, they need to lose in the playoffs before they can win the big one. Just like Dan Marino. Oh, wait. Is there any more bigger bullshit sports cliche than that one? Message saved. Next message. Hey, Jim, what's up? This is David from Buffalo calling in with a prediction for the PGA Championship. Championship. Got to go with Tepka. Tepka. Wait, everybody's been on JT. JT. Certainly not going to go with Hefty. Hefty. I got to go with Scotty. 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 Scheffler. Scheffler. Message deleted. Hey, Pimp in the Box, what is up? This is David from Buffalo. I got to jump in here and talk about those NHL playoffs. How about the freaking bread man going top shelf on Jari there in the overtime? Message deleted. Hey, Rome, what's up? This is David from Buffalo. I got to call in about this live golf that Greg Norman is trying to run or start up. This thing is a fucking joke. Message deleted. Hey, Jim, what's up? This is David from Buffalo. I got to call in about the Toronto Maple Leafs here, man. Is this team ever going to win a playoff series again? I mean, Andy Dalton can't believe this team can't get out of the first round. Message deleted. Next message. Jimmy! 
What's up? It's Dr. Dave. You know, it's been a long time since I've been on the pod. I don't know what the fuck that Riz is doing while he's reviewing this stuff. Message deleted. You have no more messages.